I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. It is now Saturday. Tomorrow is Easter Sunday. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there was what we now consider a um, less than humane practice. Of giving baby chicks. Oh, sure. Yeah. In the Easter basket. Usually the colored ones. Yeah, it was a, a bit of a, a shame. It was a misunderstanding yeah. of what little chicks really need. They, they would dye them different colors. Yeah. And, and, in, and in fact, <laughs> oh my gosh, my, I know my sister in, who is listening to this, probably in Oregon, is going to cringe. But um, I remember that, in fact, we did get baby chicks mm-hmm. one year. And we lived in the Bronx <laughs> in an apartment. <laughs> and my first memory of actually having chicks, mm-hmm. I must have been, I don't know, 10 years old, 11 years old. And remembering these kind of adolescent chicks mm-hmm. kind of running around the apartment. I mean, sure. this is not a good thing. Yeah. So here I am, you know, fast forward uh, a few decades. And um, my husband and I are farming, raising 100% grass-fed beef at our farm in western Wisconsin, here mm-hmm. in, in Amory, Wisconsin. And last year, we did get chicks. Uh, they came to us. It was an exciting day. I'll tell you, it was an exciting day. I went to the, the U.S. Postal Service because I got a phone call. And when I got there, I was handed a fairly uh, flat, long box. Now, now, it wasn't flat. I mean, it was like four inches deep, mm-hmm. but it was a long box that actually made scurring sounds. Oh, yeah. And it was peeping. Peeping. And that was my box of Mm -hmm. of chicks. And so we actually raised um, about 40 uh, free-range meat birds Mm -hmm. and an additional 15 or so laying hens over the course of last year. And that's a tiny group uh, of birds mm-hmm. by many people's standards. It was a good size for us. We had right. never done this before. And we did suffer some, uh, some uh, quite a bit of hawk predation. Oh. Um, and so this year I'm hoping to counter that with, with a new dog that I have. Mm. But we free-ranged our, our birds, which means that they actually went out into the fields in the morning and were with our cattle. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the purpose. We were we wanted our chickens with our cattle mm-hmm. so that the chickens might help us with insect control. Ah. In other words, they would scratch through the manure mm-hmm. and eat larvae. Sure. And thereby keep the adult fly population mm-hmm. down. What we didn't anticipate was the close symbiotic relationship that developed, whereby the Chickens, after a while, were actually picking insects directly off of the cows. Really? And the cows were becoming very accustomed to it. Huh. And would, in fact, lower their faces sure. to have the face flies mm-hmm. uh, picked off of them. Now, if you're living in the city, you might be listening to this and saying, Ugh. 
Um, <laughs> because you're, you know, we're not used to those kinds of relationships. But these are the kinds of relationships that actually make for a more sustainable farm. Mm-hmm. Because we have less feed that we had to bring onto the farm right. for the chickens. We had less um, work that we had to do in the way of either using a natural insecticide or some other kind of management system mm-hmm. to keep the fly population down on our cows. Hmm. Now, this is of, of, a, of a very small scale. And in fact, we only overwintered seven okay. chickens. The rest were harvested. But many of us are now anticipating chicks in the mail. Oh, it's that time of year. It's that time of year. And I know there are many people who are living in cities who have a tiny flock, maybe two or three pet hens. Mm -hmm. They're getting eggs from them. And others who are just wondering, can I do this? Mm. And what difference does it really make? And I think that when we take a look at the notion of sustainability on a farm, when we take a a thought about, Gee, how big a farmer do you have to be in, or in order to make a difference? A terrific man to be able to touch base with, and, and it's the one, uh, it's, an, it's the gentleman that we have at the other end of the line right now, is Harvey Usury, who is the author of The Small Scale Poultry Flock, an all-natural approach to raising chickens and other fowl for home and market growers. Good morning, Harvey. How are you? Good morning, Sylvia. It is. Uh, I really, yeah, I really appreciate your being on the line this morning with us. Good. To, it's good to join. Thank you. Thank you. Now you're joining us from. Uh, it sounds like a southern state. <laughs> I'm from Manhattan. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I I live in Northern Virginia, uh, out in the country, and I grew up in North Carolina. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Mm. So, Harvey, you've had such long experience raising chickens, and, and you're not only a chicken keeper and an author, but also a blogger. Um, why, why do you do this, and, and, why is it, and how is it that we should be thinking about keeping a small flock? Uh, as for why, uh, we started uh, keeping chickens. Uh, actually, my daughter started our flock uh, when we first moved out here in the country more than 30 years ago. And uh, we started out with a very conventional um, model. Uh, you see, Sylvia, you're a lot smarter than I am. Uh, you were right out of the gate first time with your chicks, and you were <clears throat> uh, fitting them into a holistic uh integrated model with your other uh, farming operations and your cattle. Um, wow, I'm really impressed with that because oh uh, so, so many people uh, start with uh, the much more conventional tiny coop and static chicken run, and that's all the chickens get. That is their ecology, and that's what we started with here. And, and over the years, it's been a matter of more and more giving expression to what I call the great liberation of liberating the chickens from that model, but uh, but being able to partner with them more and more effectively in so many ways, and you 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 mentioned a a fantastic way in which the chickens are par- partnering with the uh, the cattle, and uh, they're scratching the uh, the. Uh, fly larvae out of the uh, cow pies and scattering that for 
fertility and exposing it to sun and air, nature's sanitizers, getting free high-protein feeds in the process, and benefiting the pasture, benefiting the, uh, the uh, farmer, and getting free food for themselves. And uh, the cows are quite happy because uh, they can help with the insect control. So it is a beautifully integrated model uh, that has so much more offer than sticking the chickens off in their own little uh, isolated corner of our homescape. So, Harvey, when you think and, and talk about and actually do a lot of on-farm research with, with poultry, what is your perspective? I mean, you're, you're obviously not just looking at the chicken, but the chicken is part of a bigger system? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, have de- we have developed a system of agriculture, big agriculture today. It, it's just a one-for-one system. We want to grow carrots, so we clear the field of everything else, and we plant carrots. If the weeds come along and get away, we spray to poison them. And we don't think in terms of uh, nurturing that piece of ground as a total ecology, out of which we can get carrots this season, but another crop next season. And, oh, yes, by the way, there's enough biological diversity there to handle so many needs for soil care, and uh, balances of insect populations and so forth. So I think that at any scale at which we're working, we should be striving for that kind of model that pulls everything together and in which the chickens can help us with real-world work, such as soil improvement, uh, even at at very small scales. So let me ask you this. So I I have a, a, a good friend. And, and I'm suspecting that she is uh, emblematic of a lot of people right now who has welcomed or who received a box of 30 chicks in the mail. Uh, I know I'm, I'll get my boxes uh, in later April because that's when I want to kind of have them outdoors. Uh, others are kind of looking at their chicks. Maybe they're only a week old. How do we start thinking about this big holistic system but well, how do we start it? How do we start it once we have those little chicks coming in the mail? What's a good way to begin a good process? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, if you get chicks through the mail, then uh, what does that mean? It means you have to be mama. And that is the key to the success of the venture. You have to uh, see to every single need uh, of these chicks. And... Um, that sounds a little intimidating, but you're a living being, and you have a notion of what another living creature is going to need, protection from the elements and protection from predators, which could be your dog or cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the brooder is going to have to be set up to offer protection, plenty of airflow, just like creatures out in, in the open are getting plenty of uh, uh, oxygen. Um, and... You know, uh, from the beginning, we have to think about uh, what's going to be happening to a responsible management of what's coming out of the other end of those chicks. Mm. And as as they get to to be adults, uh, the other end of your chickens, uh, and that is their manure. Now, if we are going to be responsible chicken owners, we need to take responsibility first and foremost for making sure 
that the manure generated by our chickens is not going to be a problem. Not going to be a problem for our neighbors, certainly, because uh, of smell, and not going to be a problem for the wider ecology as a uh, source point for runoff pollution. So I would say from the beginning, even though you're doing something highly artificially, uh, highly artificial, you are brooding these little chicks who are totally dependent on a mama, and there is no mother chicken around, and you have to substitute. And you're that you have them in, a, in an enclosed brooder, which is uh, um, artificially heated. You're feeding them probably manufactured feeds. Uh, and so it, it's a highly artificial thing from one point of view, but from the beginning you need to introduce more naturalistic approaches, and, and let's think about two. One is we were talking about the manure. Imagine what happens when an animal uh, ejects its manure on a, uh, on a landscape that, that is a healthy soil. Mm-hmm. What happens? What happens? It doesn't just lie there. It doesn't just accumulate as other animals poop. What happens is the second that that manure hits a healthy soil, it starts being colonized by countless, unimaginable numbers of microbes and other larger organisms like roundworms and on and on and on. And if, if that manure accumulates, as is too often the case in our hen houses and, and even in our brooders, um, as it accumulates, uh, there is the, the conditions become more and more oxygen-starved, mm. and, and oxygen-deprived environments uh, favor pathogenic organisms, whereas lots of oxygen in the mix favors decompositional organisms to break the manure down. Mm. So when, when that manure hits a healthy soil, it's just leaped on by all of these organisms that want to use it as a food source, and they colonize it. They start out-competing any potential disease or parasite organisms. Hmm. That's what happens in nature, and that's what can happen in our brooder and in our hen house. And so in the brooder, we want a loose, absorbent, high-carbon uh, litter such as uh, wood shavings, not, a, not an aromatic wood like uh, cedar, uh, but uh, kiln-dried, say, uh, pine shavings, coarse pine shavings, to absorb the manure and um, and 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 start breaking them down because of the high carbon con- content from the beginning. Mm. And then later on, as, as, they, as the birds mature in the hen house, the, um, we, we're going to uh, imitate that natural process by having a deep litter, preferably over an earth floor, not necessarily if you have a, another building with a manufactured floor that you need to start with. But if you're starting from scratch, I recommend an earth floor, a deep, deep, high-carbon, loose, absorbent, um, organic litter. And what happens is that becomes colonized by those countless numbers of microbes. And so we're, we're duplicating that natural system so that when the, the droppings hit that litter and the chickens uh, scratch them in, the chickens are always scratching, right? Mm-hmm. And and, and as they scratch them in, we're duplicating 
that natural. Now we understand that this this idea of handling them naturally, it's not just a feel-good, greeny mantra. It's for real. We have a substrate of uh, a highly uh, ecologically diverse uh, population there ready to take on the job of uh, decomposing and neutralizing any possible threat from that manure. And guess what? Well, it, it doesn't smell bad in that chicken coop. You know, that's what I was just going to ask you. I've, I've so often heard, oh, cheap and chickens, that's got to stink. But it doesn't have to. Uh, Sylvia, I can't tell you the number of times I have given people tours of my uh, chicken coop with that wonderful deep litter system in place. And uh, if that person had ever been in another chicken coop at some point, she would stop, look around with a puzzled look, sniff, and say, why doesn't it stink in here? Hmm. And that's uh, one reason, by the way, that there's been so much op- opposition to chickens in uh, towns and suburbs because people think of uh, raising chickens as the industrial model, and of course that stinks to high heaven. Hmm. So we need to, as backyard uh, flocksters, I call us, backyard flocksters, we need to take responsibility that we're not creating a nuisance for our neighbors. And guess what? The more that we do that, the less resistance there is going to be in terms of these regulations to keep people from from raising chickens in their backyard. With regard to the brooder, that there are two things right there from the beginning in which we can think of more naturalistic management. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, the manure was one topic. And the other is, well, we talked about the other end of the chicken, so let's talk about the near end of the chicken, and that what, that, that is what goes in as feed. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very important. I am working uh, more and more all the time uh, with uh, feeding models that emphasize more natural feeds self-foraged on my place. And the holy grail for me is getting completely independent of purchased feeds. Hmm. I'm not there yet. But realistically speaking, most of us are going to end up buying feeds from the co-op, purchased feeds of one sort or another. So I want to emphasize that uh, those manufactured feeds, they are a, however good they are, they're they're just a second best, however good, and maybe they're way below second best. The best is natural feeds, and you can introduce those from the very beginning Hmm. in the brooder. So, for example, clumps of grass pulled up by the roots so that you have fresh green grass with soil attached, and the chickens can eat that the grass, and will they get some of that dirt inside them too? Absolutely. That's great because the soil is uh, populated with all of those microbes we were talking about, and some of those microbes will actually remain alive in the gut and aid the, uh, boost the immune uh, system in the growing chick and aid digestion, digestion of the feeds that you're giving it. So uh, 
another example is when you're uh, thinning in the garden, you can uh, pull those little uh, lettuce uh, thinnings out by the roots and uh, dandelion plants pulled up by the roots and fed to the chicks. Um, if you have some excess eggs, you can hard-boil them, crush them by hand, and just crush them coarsely and feed to the chicks. That's really good feed for chicks. Mm. And if you have a vermicomposting operation, you could uh, use some of those uh, earthworms. So natural feeds in the brooder from the beginning really give the, the chicks a good uh, initial start and get them used to uh, thinking in terms of looking for natural feed so that when you do put them out on pasture uh, as they mature, then they're going to already be looking for live natural feeds as what they want on their dinner plate. What role, Harvey, does uh, the breed of chicken have in your quest to uh, purchase no feed? Well, uh, the... The older breeds, the heritage breeds, they tend to uh, to still retain those uh, strong uh, instincts to go out and, and seek out natural feeds. Um, <clears throat> so I like the older breeds in, in preference to the, um, the modern super hybrid uh, types. Now, a hybrid layer, I, I will have to say, she's going to be out there uh, foraging pretty skillfully, too. Um, but a modern, the modern meat, fast-growing meat hybrids, uh, they are not going to to be as uh, aggressive foragers ever as uh, as more traditional breeds. Now, speaking of breeds and the subject of foraging, uh, I, I'm entering my third year of uh, raising Icelandic chickens exclusively. They are my ideal homestead breed, and one reason is because they're known as such aggressive foragers. And if I get to uh, zero purchase feeds with any breed, I suspect it will be the Icelandics. And by the way, uh, they're, they're, they're more what we would call a land race rather than a breed. They were never selected to fit. Uh, to conform tightly to a breed standard, and so they just—they're a visual kaleidoscope. You know, Harvey, they're, they're, they are so interesting. Could you give us a little bit more background on on them? Because I would suspect that almost nobody has heard about the Icelandics. That is correct. I now have a an article on my website that was published last fall in Mother Earth News, and yes, that was the first introduction to uh, this this uh, very interesting land race uh, in English, as far as I know. Anyway, they, uh, they have an 1,100-year uh, history. They go all the way back to the settling of Iceland by the Norse, and over that more than a millennium, uh, they were selected uh, a lot by nature, really, and the conditions under which they were living, but selected... Um, for productivity and hardiness on Icelandic small holdings. And believe me, those people were not growing and feeding huge quantities of grain. They were expecting those birds to get out and hustle. In other words, they were being managed, as Joel Salatin says, of chicken flocks traditionally. They were being managed as a scavenger mm -hmm. of resources of resources like wild plants and seeds and 
uh, insects that would not be available directly to us as food, but they were out there feeding themselves on those uh, resources and bringing them to our table in the form of uh, eggs and, and meat. So over time, uh, selecting for a breed that uh, fit a paradigm in which they were largely feeding themselves, um, they, they, they came up with this, this uh, land race that is on the small size. Mm-hmm. So how, if, how big if, how big a chicken do you end up with, Harvey, with a with an Icelandic? The, about the size of a leghorn. So I, I'm sorry, I can't quote the actual numbers for you. I should have uh, had them here at, at the desk, but about the size of a, a leghorn. Um, and so they are on the small size for a meat bird, but around my place, any bird that needs to be called, that's meat chicken. Mm-hmm. And they they were selected over time for laying pretty well, very well, uh, for a such a self-sufficient breed. And here is something that I especially like about this breed. They retain the broody instinct, the instinct of a chicken, like a wild bird, to uh, incubate a clutch of eggs, hatch out the chicks, and take care of the chicks until they're ready to be on their own. Mm-hmm. Now, why is this important to me? Because I do not own, I have never used an incubator. When I hatch chicks, uh, and I am in the third year now of breeding all of my own stock, and I hatch my chicks out under natural mothers. Mm. And so, and now, now the, the, I said retain the broody instinct. That instinct to mother chicks, incubate eggs and mother chicks, that has been deliberately bred out of most of our modern breeds. Really? And so if if you want to work with broody hens, and it's something, it's just a magical thing. It brings out the kid in me. And if you have children uh, working with a broody hen uh, to, to hatch some chicks, it is a way of sharing with your children the miracle of life. Uh, that's another thing that appeals to me about the Icelandics, and I've, I've really enjoyed these birds. Yes, we only have a few minutes left, Harvey. So one of the things I'd like to do is, is uh, have you kind of give us your website or other ways of communicating with you so that people can learn more about what you do and, and know where to find your book. Uh, yes, my, my book is available from all the usual suspects. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, from the publisher, of course, Chelsea Green in Vermont, uh, available from them. Uh, all of the big uh, uh, homesteading publications like Mother Earth News and Countryside Magazines, they have it. Acres USA sells it. So it is not difficult at all to find. My website is themodernhomestead.us. So the modern homestead, but not dot com. It's dot us, and that it's a uh, that website is basically a an extensive library of articles on the topics that you and I have been talking about and gardening and soil care issues. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of information there. You know, the other thing I'd like to talk about at a future time, perhaps Harvey, is the notion of um, just the the um, the quality of our 
chicken and chick stock altogether across the country and what efforts there might be to actually uh, on the small scale, on the, on the backyard scale and on the small farm scale to actually improve the quality of the birds that we're actually uh, going to be depending upon as we go forward. Very important topic. I am breeding all of my own stock. I'm, I don't have huge numbers of birds, but I am doing responsible improvement breeding just on a homestead scale. I know more and more small farmers who are doing the same in a network called the Sustainable Poultry Network, mm-hmm. put, together, put together by Jim Adkins, and they're doing really interesting and uh, important work breeding for improvement of some of the uh, heritage breeds. And uh, there is a listing on the Sustainable Poultry Network uh, website. There is a listing of uh, certified flocks all over the country, maybe up close to 100 flocks now, where you can order chicks that are considerably uh, above the quality of the average uh, mega hatchery uh, chick stock these days. Well, Harvey, I want to thank you so much for even getting us started on this really, really uh, large and important topic for so many of us who farm on a small scale, um, who do some market work with eggs and, and meat poultry, and who also are thinking about starting out. So thank you so much for being with us this morning. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, and I hope I do get a chance to uh, join you again sometime. Bye, Harvey. Bye-bye now. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.